Um, today we are obviously going to speak about um, what whatever happened yesterday. Uh, we're going to try to unpack the things that happened. Um, obviously, we have Nick Lowes, who is the CEO of Hope Not Hate. Uh, we have Joe Mulhall, who's the senior researcher uh, of Hope Not Hate, and Matthew McGregor, who is um, head of campaigns and communications. Um, so before we get started, uh, if people are popping in, as I said, we will keep this approximately 45 minutes. There'll be a few minutes at the end for questions. Please put them in the Q&A button below and uh, we will try to um, get started as soon as possible. Uh, I want to start, uh, Joe, to ask you first, um, what actually happened yesterday? Um, who did it? Um, where, who is involved? Why did it happen? And what's the context behind this? If you can get, talk about it for like five minutes, that would be great. I've, that's a lot to cover, but yeah, I'm happy to try and do it in five minutes. I mean, broadly speaking, I think actually, if we're going to try and understand yesterday the remarkable events, I'm sure people have seen the footage of the storming of, of the Capitol building. Um, I think we should actually put them in historical context, actually. How is it we got here? How is it we ended up in a situation where we're sitting at home watching the news and there's people dressed in strange outfits and mad tattoos sat inside the building that they've just scaled? Um, how do we get here? This, and I think it's really important, actually, to understand that this has not happened overnight understanding what's happened in terms of yesterday but also just the last the last four years is not something that has emerged uh overnight it's not kind of an aberration this is the thing that's been building and, and those of us at places like hope not hate and our colleagues in america have been monitoring this for, for years and years and watching this slow creep and this slow build and this is not just in america we've, we've been monitoring it across europe we've seen it in india we've seen it in, in brazil this is a global phenomenon we're watching and uh, and i think it's worth putting it in that context in terms of understanding yesterday and, and america i guess it's worth understanding a little bit about the american far right to start with in some ways um in some ways, this is not a surprise, right? The US or the organized American far right has always or generally emerged in reaction to challenges uh, against systemic white supremacy. And this is what we're seeing again. Through history, whether or not we're talking about the Civil War and Reconstruction, uh, the movement of black communities from the South to the North and the Midwest during World War I, uh, the Civil Rights Movement of the 1950s and 1960s, or most recently, of course, the election of a black president in Obama, white supremacist movements in North America emerge and have emerged continuously to oppose any change and recapture the status quo or attempt to recapture. Um, and this reactionary tradition is fundamental to understanding the contemporary American far right, because we're watching it happen once more. Um, while these historical legacies of racism and, and these long standing long view factors uh, remain really important for understanding this, if we really want to understand where we, we've come to today, it's worth looking at the kind of the movements that emerged in the 1970s onwards. Uh, and these shaped the contemporary American far right. The white nationalist movements of the 21st century have grown out of the white supremacist movements of the 70s and 80s. Uh, the legacies of what we're looking at today can be traced back to then. And what's really important for understanding this, I think, uh, is the post-civil rights era, the American far right of the post-civil rights era brought about change uh, there was a change within the American far right, sorry, and essentially it became a movement that was built around the idea of white dispossession. This notion that the country that they believed had once been the sole property of white people was no longer only theirs. This is the long view of how we've got here. This sense of loss, decline and paradoxical victimhood um, remains essentially the lifeblood of the American far right and is central to understanding both the rise of Donald Trump and what we're watching right now in the last few days, this fear of loss. This is not just about economics. 
um, too, too many lazy uh, articles have been written saying this is just about the kind of the, 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 the scream or the anger of the white working class in America. It's not actually. I mean, Trump supporters were, were more wealthy than uh, Clinton in some, uh, Clinton supporters in some cases. What we're looking at here is, is a much broader thing about a sense of loss and decline and a fear of the loss of white supremacy. Now, in terms of more short term history, how we got here, we have to look at the transform transformation of the GOP. Um, into the party that would nominate Donald Trump. How does this happen? Anyone who's looked at American politics in the long run, in the long term, uh, will remember when it was a much more sensible party in some ways. Um, not always a nicer party, but certainly sometimes more sensible. Now, in, in 2009, I think we have to go back and we have to look at the, the emergence of the Tea Party. Really, again, fundamental to understanding how it is we've ended up in this situation. Under Barack Obama, the president, we see this emergence of this new radical right populist movement emerges named after the 1773 Boston Tea Party. Uh, and this Tea Party is, is not necessarily a political party. It's a pressure group in some ways. It's a, a broad movement. It engages in protests. It nominates candidates in elections. Uh, but about eight out of 10 people, according to polling, um, were Republicans involved in this. Now, essentially, they always said they had three central elements. They have fiscal responsibility, limited, limited government, and free markets. But anyone who's looked at this movement closely over the years will know there was a deep strain of really ugly xenophobia right at the center of the movement. Uh, especially, of course, anti-Obama and kind of anti-black racism directed towards Obama. And essentially what actually happens through that Tea Party period over that kind of last 10 years is we see the Tea Party becomes a wholesale conduit for the revival of the American Patriot Movement and its militia movements, which go back many decades as well. And so while they've essentially failed in their core element or their core aim, which was the desire to end big government and big spending, the Tea Party does in some ways contribute to the transformation of the, the Republican Party into the sort of party where Trump could become nominated. They unleash this politics of anger on the American right. And so when Trump actually won the nomination, uh, I think there was all the, again, you will have seen all these articles essentially arguing that Trump hijacked the Republican Party. And I don't think that's necessarily true. I think the research is increasingly showing that while he wasn't perhaps representative by the point he was elected, he wasn't representative of of the GOP at a federal level. Uh, this was not necessarily true at a state or local level anymore, particularly in the American heartlands between the two coasts. In fact, Trump in many ways was much more accurate representation of the GOP electorate than the party establishment politicians by the time he gets uh, elected. So this is the kind of long thing. This is this long sense of white backlash, this anger, uh, this transformation of the, the Republican party into the sort of party that elects Trump. And then the normalization of his politics in power. And I think that there's no better understanding of that normalization than just a month ago, 74 million Americans vote for Donald Trump, right? This is after he's the Muslim ban. This is after Charlottesville when he's talked about, you know, fine people on both sides and he's defended neo-Nazis and fascists at Charlottesville after we've seen children in cages, after the Muslim ban. Are oh, you just name it. Oh, the normalization of, of this sort of politics that happened over the last four years has been really terrifying. You throw in a big dollop of conspiracy theories and the spread of fake uh, misinformation and, and Trump himself and the actions of this. And, and we have this really potent cocktail. So obviously analysis in terms of yesterday specifically, who was it, who was involved? It's early days, everyone's still going through the footage. We're still doing it ourselves. We're still hoovering it in. But the obvious answer is they were Trump supporters, right? I know that sounds really quite trite, right? But one of the things I, I just wanna hammer home is there is going to be, and we're already seeing attempt to paint the actions of yesterday of this kind of small extremist, non-representative fringe. Uh, that is not the case. Uh, in many ways that large chunks of the Republican base now and the supporters of Trump and the Republican party 
were uh, okay with this. 45% of Republican voters approved the storming of the Capitol yesterday. 30% think the individuals involved were patriots. This is not an extreme, just an extreme far-right fringe that's got involved in this. So I want to kind of put that out there. And this is also shouldn't have come as a surprise. Right? Any of us that were looking at this were not, uh, we were perhaps shocked by the footage, but not surprised that it had happened. And, and I don't think anyone should have been. Anyone looking that was there, Trump supporters who rioted yesterday in the Capitol building um, have been talking about this openly on far-right platforms and centre-right and Republican platforms for weeks now, social media and pro-Trump forums like the Donalds that many of you might have come across. It was formerly a Reddit uh, channel and now it's a website called the Donald. Uh, I mean, more than 50% of the top posts on, the, on January 4th about this event on the 6th uh, certification featured unmoderated calls for violence in the top five responses. Uh, this was so easy to find. Social media platforms like Parler, Telegram, other corners of the far-right internet, people discussing this rally were being open in terms of using these forums of, in plain sight, talking about uprisings, talking about coups, talking about violence. The Republican base in some ways has become increasingly far-right. This is not a fringe phenomenon. Um, it has been mainstreamed. And we also, just as a side point, we cannot let the individuals who allowed this to happen get off free. In terms of Britain, we're talking Nigel Farage, Douglas Murray, Majid Nawaz, the spectator. The individuals that have contributed to this normalisation and mainstreaming, uh, uh, sh we should not let them forget it. However, I will just briefly touch upon a few of the individuals and groups we have picked up that were from the more organised elements of the far right. Um, perhaps the most striking images of yesterday that many of you will have seen is this slightly peculiar character with the big hat and the feathers and the uh, the kind of uh, storming the thing he had tattoos on him and uh, he was being called or is known as the Q shaman this is a guy called Jake Angeli he's 32 he was pictured wearing this kind of horned fur hat as he stormed the building yesterday uh, some of the tattoos we picked up instantly with the Volknot and the uh, Majolnir tattoos these are kind of Norgan, Nordic pagan symbols that, that anyone who monitors the far right would be familiar with but QAnon, for those of you who aren't aware, sounds ludicrous, right? QAnon is a conspiracy theory that alleges that President Trump is waging a secret war against a cabal of powerful satanic paedophiles, uh, alleged to be kidnapping, torturing, and even cannibalizing children on a vast scale. It almost, it's almost so ludicrous as to sound amusing, but the FBI have long, uh, over the last year, talked about this being a genuine terrorist threat. We've seen numerous violent events, and we saw it again. You would have seen a number of the pictures from yesterday's events, you would have seen very prominent Q iconography, um, flags, t-shirts, tattoos, etc. At the moment, this is a sort of decentralized grand and, and it's a multifaceted phenomenon. It's, it's both a conspiracy theory, but it's also a political movement. It's also a quasi-religion. Um, this Q shaman himself thinks that he can see through to other dimensions and find paedophiles in other dimensions. So it's not just here he's finding them. Um, but this again is another thing that has gone mainstream. And 97 US congressional candidates publicly showed support for Q in the, in the last set of elections. This is something that started on the dark, weird corners of the internet you know, on 4chan and 8chan and has spread across through the Republican Party to the point where it's essentially been a voting bloc. So Q individuals were very, very prominent uh, in yesterday's events. The other ones that you will have seen lots of is the Proud Boys. Um, these are the guys often wearing Fred Perry black and yellow shirts. I hate them because I uh, used to have lots of <laughs> black and yellow Fred Perry shirts. But um, Essentially, the organization was founded back in 2016 by Gavin McInnes. He was actually the guy that created Vice News. He's a very close ally of Tommy Robinson in the UK. He's come to the UK numerous times and spent time with Tommy Robinson. He spoke in London. They're an anti-immigrant. They're an all-male group. Um, they describe themselves as a Western chauvinist fraternity. 
Um, they've long engaged in kind of violence. The, their leader was arrested just days before the protests in DC. And again, there was a nod and a wink talking of this mainstream with President Trump during the uh, election presidential debates. He was asked about the Proud Boys and he said, Proud Boys stand back and stand by. No condemnation once more telling them, giving them a wink and a nod. This is Trump and this is the Republican uh, Party winking and nodding to the, the far right, the violent far right. Uh, yesterday, we've picked up numerous videos and pictures from prominent Proud Boy members within the Capitol building itself. Um, and those footage and those things are still being analyzed, but they were certainly there. The other one to say is actually, you know, without being tried, actual Nazis. There was actual Nazis at these events. That's what they were. We shouldn't call them anything else. Images from within the building we've picked up of groups that people linked to a group called the Traditional Workers Party. Again, this is a kind of neo-Nazi party that was central to the organization of the Charlottesville rally. Um, I've seen a picture, just one, but there's, there's broader rumors that we're looking into about the National Socialist Club, the NSC 131. Again, this is a neo-Nazi terrorist organization, primarily based in America, but it does have activists around the world. Uh, I'm sure some of you will have also seen the pictures of someone in the Camp Auschwitz hoodie, which says staff on the back. Again, central to a lot of this QAnon and a lot of this uh, far-right activism in America right now is anti-Semitism, conspiratorial anti-Semitism. And then finally, we also had this mix of kind of relatively prominent alt-right figures. Probably the most prominent was a guy called Tim Giannetz, who goes under the a pseudonym Baked Alaska. We picked up pictures of him inside uh, Nancy Pelosi's office alongside another alt-right or far-right activist called Nick Fuentes, uh, who's engaged in all sorts of conspiratorial anti-Semitism. Also, lots of rumors about other high-profile alt-right figures. And then just finally, the last three things I just wanted to, to note that we're picking up is the flags. I'm sure you will have looked at these images. You will have seen loads of Trump flags, of course. But there was a three sets of flags, I think, that were interesting. One was, of course, the use of the Confederate flag. Uh, this is the flag of the Confederate States of America, which were the 11 southern states that seceded from the U.S. to, to continue slavery. Um, this is a complex... A piece of iconography in North America. Um, it's used in different ways, sometimes to represent Southern pride, pride, sometimes to be explicitly racist, and, uh, and I would argue, generally speaking, is. Uh, we saw large numbers of these flags. We saw them inside the Capitol building, which is something that I think shocked a large number of Americans, especially African Americans, seeing that within their Capitol building was a pretty shocking sight. The other one that there was loads of was the Gadsden flag, you may have seen. The yellow flag with a, a snake on the front says, don't tread on us. This is actually a symbol from 1775. Uh, this was traditionally used by the libertarian movement as in don't tread on us in terms of big government, but it has increasingly become linked with the alt-right and it's this libertarian wing of the far right end, uh, oh, sorry, the libertarian end of the far right. And then the other one I, we picked up was a couple of uh, the Kekistani flags. Anyone who's seen it is like a green flag. It actually mimics of, of a, a German Reich flag, but um, it's green and it's linked to 4chan and it's linked to this kind of pseudo-religion, this semi-ironic religion called Kek and, and this deity, the Kek the Frog, which is too tedious to go into now. But again, this is clear indication that it was kind of alt-right figures involved in this. So there is, uh, I don't want to give the impression that this was all just fringe far-right actors, though there was, we already can see within the last 24 hours, very clear evidence of that. Uh, but this was, broadly speaking, it was Trump supporters and the American right more broadly. The final thing just to flag is we're already seeing the narrative being spun by numerous people that are backpedaling from the events of yesterday, that this was a kind of a false flag operation carried out by American Antifa, uh, one of the most high-profile people pushing this is Bridget Gabriel, who runs Act for America, the largest anti-Muslim organization in North America and, and one of the, in the world. She's been pushing this. We've seen that. And of course, in the UK, even Majid Nawaz on his Twitter feed yesterday was indicating that, that, that he's also seen rumors about Antifa being involved. Uh, 
people have been looking at this extremely closely, fact checkers, etc. And so far, it's been proved to be nonsense. Um, so just kind of watch out for that as this continues to unfold in the coming days, we will start to see individuals blaming the left and blaming Antifa rather than blaming the right and blaming Trump. Uh, so there's just a quick run through of the history and, and some of the stuff we've picked up, but I'm sure in the coming days, as we continue to analyze the footage, more and more will start to pop out. Thanks, Joe. Um, I want to speak to you to uh, ask you, Nick, um, the underlying picture and public opinion, what do we know from, so at Hope Nahe, we do a lot of polling uh, and we have done a lot of polling with um, our Hopeful Towns project and other projects in the UK, but also around the world. Um, could you know, could you tell us what do we know from our polling and how do, how much support does uh, these movements have in a wider context as well? Sure. Um, thank, thanks very much. Um, I mean, I think just to echo what um, Joe said, because I think the context is important that, you know, Trump didn't um, create this create this movement. I mean, obviously, he's built it up, but it but it's been there in US society for um, 40, uh, 50 years. And I think it's kind of snowballed and he's brought it together. And I think, you know, that's really important to to understand. And if you look at, you know, Barry Goldwater in the 60s, Ross Perot, 1992, Pat Buchanan, Tea Party. Um, and in a way, Trump kind of brought it together. And it's probably about 20 percent of the 20 percent of, of the country are in a way the firm believers. Um, obviously, Trump has got a lot more support in society, but he he created this kind of coalition of um, the kind of the kind of radical end, um, which I mean, I think, you know, for anyone who wants to read a book to really understand this, I would recommend Don Warren's um, Middle American uh, Radicals. Uh, um, he, the Sorry, his book was called The, uh, the Radical Center, uh, Middle Americans and the Politics of Alienation. He wrote this book in the 70s, which really looked at this kind of very new group that broke traditional norms. And they were angry at the elite of above. They were angry at what they called the undeserving poor. And that was obviously, um, you know, the kind of black, black, black community. But um, if you look at Ross, Ross Perot's vote in 1992, he stood as an independent candidate and got 19% um, of the vote in the presidential elections. And I think, you know, if you if you look at Trump's now, um, his core base is about 20%. Obviously, there's a wider base. And also because being the um, Republican Party candidate, he obviously had the kind of um, conservatives and the kind of fiscal conservatives. And I think what what's happened in the last six months is that started to break or at least the kind of last year um i think you know with the tax cuts that trump was doing over the last couple of years he held them together their, their kind of economic interest they 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 could put up with his kind of extremist views and his kind of incendiary language and his kind of you know particularly the kind of um anti-women stuff and the the and the immigrant bashing they could put up with that because they were getting billions literally billions back in 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 in, in tax cuts i think covid started to change all that and that started to, to to rupture some some of his alliance and particularly with women and you saw the kind of suburban um, some of the suburban women moving away from him in November 2018 in the midterms, and that obviously continued through now. But I think, you know, a, a, um, a couple of key points, because it's not just on policy issues. It's not just that, you know, Trump supporters, you know, 
don't like immigrants, Trump supporters don't like Muslims, Trump supporters, you know, are fearful of Antifa and think that they're, you know, by, by far the biggest threat to, you know, Trump supporters hate China and are, and are fearful of China. <clears throat> I think it's the underlying views that are probably more worrying because these will outlast Trump. You know, it's their views towards democracy. You know, they, they have a very bad view. I mean, th um, um thirty-four percent of Trump voters. We 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 did some polling in September and October of sixteen thousand people in the US. Thirty-four percent of Trump voters said that they would prefer a strong and de uh, decisive leader who who put a who who got rid of elections rather than rather than a parliamentary system. So a third of his voters believes in a dictatorship. 39% of his voters said that they would trade human rights and freedom for the preservation of their country's traditional values. But also when it comes to violence as well, you know, way more Trump supporters kind of believe that violence was necessary at times. And obviously, given the fact that even before the elections, um, the overwhelming uh, majority of Trump supporters believed that the election wasn't going to be fair. And that's all obviously snowballed since it's un it's unsurprising that um, that we we ended up where we were yesterday um you know that that 40 percent of trump supporters believe that that kind of civil war civil war was going to happen and that and that violence um was 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 necessary to to defend something that they believed in i think one of the one of the points that um joe mentioned was was QAnon. Um, and I think this is really important because this became in 2020 a kind of key constituency for Trump. And that's why Trump was never able to distance himself from it. You know, it, despite that clear, you know, it, the kind of media attacks on Trump and the, you know, clearly alienating the middle, he was never able to kind of dismiss them because actually they became such a central voting block um, for, for him. So just pure, you know, I, I don't believe that kind of Trump believes in a lot of the QAnon stuff, but it, it became, you know, a major part of his coalition. 21% um, of Trump voters, according to our polling, believe are, define themselves as supporters of, of QAnon. 14% um, of, of, of Americans identify with QAnon, both being strong supporters and soft supporters. 81% of QAnon supporters think that civil war is coming to the US. And 73% of QAnon supporters think that violence might be necessary to defend the, their something that they believe in strongly. So I think when, when you've got this, when you've got this kind of both this long-standing rebellionness and this kind of um, extremist group in 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 America, twenty percent of society, coupled with, and I think you know the other thing is that the the kind of right wing media, by right wing, isn't Fox News. Actually, you know, Trump and his allies are are dismissing Fox. News for going soft. You know, you're talking about war and pandemic. You're talking about One American News, Newsmax, Gateway Pundit. These, these. I mean, Steve Bannon, uh, War on Pandemic is now the biggest podcast in 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 the US. These have been winding it up for weeks. They've been winding it up, and and, and in a way, yesterday was, was as much a reaction and the fault of these these outlets um, as as it was Trump. Uh, as it was Trump. I just want to finish on, on the final point because I think that, you know, obviously yesterday, I think, you know, has badly damaged Trump. 
you know, perhaps, you know, termly. Um, his own supporters are, many of his own people are starting to leave him or at least using it as the excuse. But what caused Trumpism and what he tapped into is going to continue. And what was really interesting, if you listen to him, some of the kind of podcasts o- overnight, many of his own supporters were getting disillusioned towards him at the speech yesterday. They found his speech defeatist. He was using past tense for the presidency. They didn't say it fired up. And many of them were actually going on on air before the trouble saying, you know, Trump's finished. We we don't need Trump. This is far bigger than Trump. So, you know, the idea that this this is ends ends last night is 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 an absolute mistake. Thanks, Nick. Uh, before we move on to Matthew, I actually have a question to you, Nick, um, just relating to your last point. I mean, you were saying that um, we don't need, uh, they don't need Trump, and but can you see that any, like, these QAnon supporters or Trump supporters are finding other alliances or other leaders? Is that something, I mean, maybe Joe and Matthew can answer this as well. Um, is there any kind of other uh, leader that we're seeing that is, that's emerging? I think this question came in the inbox today as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, I think that I mean clearly, no one has got either the platform or even the persona of Trump, you know, um, and 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 so I think I think what might happen is a fragmentation, um, and it will splinter into either different ideological or cult- cultural groups. But a, I mean, obviously, um, um, Trump's sons clearly want want to take on his his kind of mantle. There are a number of. Um, very kind of hardline, uh, particularly people in Congress, um, who I think will become even more, more, more important. Um, but I also think that, you know, if Trump really, I mean, because obviously Trump was hoping to build a movement to go to 2024. Um, if that can't, can't happen because of this, I think you'll get sections, particularly the QAnon lot, moving away from from the uh, Republican Party, and that could, of course, lead towards more violence as they look for more alternative routes. So I think we'll see a splintering, and I think we'll see lots of new leaders emerging, but certainly not not on the scale of Trump. Thanks, Nick. Um, okay, over to Matthew. Um, how can we draw any? parallels to the UK or to the wider Europe? What lessons do we have, can we take from uh, from this event yesterday or from the wider movement? Um, what is it that we should be worried about? And yeah, what is it that we actually can learn moving on to 2021? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Um, thanks for organizing this, Afrida. Um, I think that the, um, the, 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 the scenes we saw in, in the US were, were quite shocking for those of us that have that have um, worked there, got friends there, um, but also were shocking because of the central role that American culture has in um, uh, uh, our country and countries across Europe. And I think there's a lot we need to try and analyze, not just in terms of what happens in the US, because the US is a really important you know, and powerful country, but also its knock-on impact um, uh, here and, and some of the things that we should kind of look out for and you know in that sort of classic uh uh phrase it's sort of it's, it's too early to tell but i think based on what we've seen from trump and uh, the impact that the uh maga movement and the alt-right has had over the last four years there are some things that we we can we, can, we know we need to look out for the first thing is that um events like last night are in themselves radicalizing moments even when it looks like a, a defeat when it looks like something that will 
uh, go down badly in the suburbs or or, or play badly in the polls. Um, those kinds of events are radicalizing for a, a large number of followers, people who are watching, um, uh, and even if it's only a very small number of people who are radicalized, they uh, can be a real uh, threat in themselves. And, and you see Trump's relationship with the far right in the US um, was described in a, an article for our, um, our election special magazine last year, which is really worth rereading uh, from the political research associates based in Massachusetts. They said that Trump's relationship with the far right is one of call and response. It's not a, 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 an organic, uh, it's not a kind of a formal relationship, but Trump knows how to send signals and they know how to respond. And that's what we saw during his speech and in the, his statements in the run up to uh, yesterday. Um, but it's also what we'll see over the, the coming days. Um, last night was a, a radicalizing moment for a lot of people who, who watched it. But that's also the case for people who are watching online around the world. So we know from experience that um, what Trump does and what the far right does in the US has a really big impact on the, the language, on the motivation, and on the willingness to act of far right activists and sympathizers. So yesterday, while in, in many ways was a defeat for the far right, in many ways was bad for, for Trump, is also going to have a ripple effect of, of a sort of a positive moment for um, the, the forces of hate. And we've seen that kind of influence in a, in a sort of a general sense in the way in which QAnon, uh, which Joe and Nick have, have, have touched on, has percolated into Europe. This sort of in, almost uniquely American ideology has been picked up in, in Europe and kind of molded to European circumstances in, in a really bizarre way. But I think that yesterday's events will have an impact on a radicalizing impact on, on activists on this side of the pond as well. The second thing I think that we um, need to take away from yesterday is the extent to which this isn't a uniquely American experience. I think that it is particularly um, frightening in America because of the scale uh, of the, uh, the scenes that we saw, because of the power of the, the country uh, that is happening in, and because frankly, uh, most of these people are, are armed and that's one really, really big difference in an analysis between the far right in the US and, and elsewhere is that elsewhere, um, people don't tend to be um, as well, but aren't as well armed. But when you look at some of the underlying principles, um, some of a, a lot of the a lot of the things that the far right are doing in the U.S. Um, have um, uh, similarities elsewhere. You know, just last week, um, a member of the public was jailed for um, threatening uh, violence against uh, British Bridget Philipson MP, the MP for Sunderland. Um, uh, and at the more extreme end, just before December, we saw uh, Luke Hunter uh, jailed, uh, charged uh, days after he was reported to the police by Hope Not Hate after a year long investigation um, for attempting to inspire uh, people to um, commit acts of, of terrorism. So this is not a US thing uniquely. And uh, when we analyze what happens in the US, we mustn't sort of think of it as, you know, American exceptionalism uh, not being a thing uh, cuts cuts both ways. The third thing I think that we um, should uh, um, take away from the US and think about it in the US context, U UK context is the extent to which the online and offline worlds are, are now one. This idea that online abuse, online harassment um, is an online phenomenon 
um, it, we have to put it to bed. Online harms is a is a thing we need to tackle, but online harms are uh, don't stay siloed in in the internet. Um, online harms are a problem in and of themselves. The harassment and the abuse and the stress that 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 the far right can cause simply through um, abusive messages and, and harassment campaigns is something that needs to be tackled on its own. But those those things inspire others to act as well. Um, and, and the offline activity goes back online as well. We saw that with national action and the way that they used offline actions to, to generate buzz online. And it was really telling yesterday, once the fire activists had broken into um, the House of Representatives, the first thing they did inside the House of Representatives was take selfies, make videos and create content. Uh, it is a symbiotic relationship between the online world and the offline world. And I think that's something we need to take really seriously. And it was really interesting today to see um, uh, um, uh, uh, his name escapes me, um, uh, Lord Putnam, um, the, the, the famous uh, uh, media um, uh, figure calling for the online harms bill that the government is bringing forward uh, to include undermining democracy and democratic institutions as an online harm in itself. And I think that's a really interesting lesson. Fourth thing is um, the extent to which conspiracy theories and disinformation are, are a genuine real problem. I, I, I think quite often disinformation and misinformation and conspiracy theories are, are laughed at by people with the ability and power to do something about them. Social media companies have not taken disinformation and uh, misinformation seriously enough. The authorities have not acted uh, in, a, in a, a concrete enough way. The online harms bill still hasn't even been published. Uh, uh, several years after this has been a, a really, really serious issue. Um, and we saw yesterday the impact of a failure to act against disinformation. That is why disinformation is so dangerous. That is why conspiracy theories are so dangerous. It, it ends not with idiots on the internet being uh, tricked into believing stupid things. It ends with uh, the, the, the cathedral of democracy, as they call it in the United States, being uh, assaulted by uh, people who have been um, uh, tricked into believing those things. And uh, I think we would be um, fooling ourselves if we thought that um, disinformation wasn't as dangerous in, in this country. And then I want to end lastly on, 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 on one thing, which is the, uh, the hope that yesterday gave me. Not yesterday evening, in, in what happened in Congress, but yesterday morning with the results coming out of Georgia, the state of Georgia elected its first ever black man to be a senator from its state and under um, under noted, I think, it also elected its first Jewish senator. Uh, and that happened not by accident. It didn't happen because um, there's a, 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 just this sort of sweep of, 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 of a democratic wave. It happened because of the hard graft that organizers did in that state, most notably Stacey Abrams, but she was the leader of a movement that organized on the ground for, for, for months and years against a state Republican infrastructure that sought to suppress the vote, to take away the vote from uh, black Americans and from young Americans and from Latino Americans. And they beat that machine. And, and that in itself is not, um, uh, doesn't uh, uh, take away the pain of the fact that 74 million Americans voted for Donald Trump. It doesn't um, uh, mean that everything's gonna be okay. What it does mean is that there is hope in a movement that can win. And um, uh, despite the, the, the terrifying scenes we saw yesterday, and despite the um, 
uh, how distressing it was that Trump got as many votes as he did. The Democrats won the White House, the Democrats won the House, and now because of the work of organizers in Georgia, Democrats have won the Senate. And I think that should give us some hope that there is the ability to fight back against the hate that we saw in the corridors of Congress last night.